If I've not met you before, my name's Pete. I'm part of the staff team uh, here at KXC. We started this series last week, which is called... Come on, come on. Uh, glad it settled in. So, Uprising, Cultivating a Revolutionary Prayer Life. Um, and, and we've gone for this. Oh, yeah. Real good? Real good? Uh, we've gone for this because Jesus said this, right? When he was asked um, by his disciples, how should we pray? He says this, pray to your heavenly father and, and ask him that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. The implication being that there is a kingdom at hand, at work, in this world that is somehow not of him, that is somehow earthly and broken and we're in pain and there needs to be some kind of revolution and overthrowing of that kingdom by the kingdom that looks more like God's kingdom. A heavenly, eternal kingdom. That is what Jesus is saying needs to break in. He's saying somehow prayer is at the heart of it. And it's why Karl Barth, a theologian, um, said this, that to clasp the hands in prayer, this is where we get the language from, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. We at KXC have this huge vision out of Revelation 21 to serve God's purposes to make all things new. Right? We want to see all of culture renewed. We want to see this earth renewed And if we're passionate about that, the learning of this is that we need to be passionate about prayer. The two go together. Um, And so for for this week and the three after this, we're going to be looking and digging in on on prayer. And I mentioned last week that if we want to be that kind of people that bring uh, an eternal kingdom, God's kingdom into this world, then we're going to need to be people that pray. But it, it can be hard, right? Living in this world, trying to be that kind of prophetic people, uh, living in this world, that can be difficult. And these sort of gravitational pulls can start to set in around our prayer life. And we've picked four of them. There'll be many more. But we've gone for four to frame this series around them. And the first is towards disconnection, a disconnection from Jesus. See, you just go about your daily life and you wake up three, four, five months later and you suddenly like feel a bit distant and a bit disconnected from him, a bit unfamiliar uh, with his voice, lack of intimacy in your relationship with him. There's this gravity gravitational pull that's set in uh, and you're starting to feel disconnected from God. And so what we're talking about today actually is going to be about how to cultivate a devotional prayer life, a a prayer life that cultivates intimacy and counters that um, gravitational pull. Second one uh, we talked about, and this is Anna Mason's going to be preaching on this next week, was this pull towards isolation, isolation from one another. And we suddenly again wake up three, four, five months later and it's like, when was the last time I actually shared how I'm doing with anyone else so they could pray with me? When was the last time someone laid their hands on me and, and found into flame that which God was doing, that contended for breakthrough for me and prayed for me in the power of the Holy Spirit? I've just been trying to do it alone, alone, alone. Sure, praying to God, but just needing the strength of others to lift my hands up in this battle. So we're going to talk about communal prayer and, and contending for one another in the power of the Holy Spirit um, in, uh, next week. Uh, the one after that, uh, we, we're talking about this sense of hopelessness that can set in. It's a dramatic word, but essentially what I mean by that, right, is that so, we can all relate to this. There is so much weight that goes on. While while, while we're contending for God's kingdom to break in, but it's not fully here yet, that it's a growing kingdom, there is a sense of waiting. I've asked for this to happen, God, but it hasn't happened yet. Or confusion, because it hasn't happened in the way that we might have wanted. And there's pain, and there's disappointment, and there's frustration. And and we're not careful, months can pass by, and suddenly we feel a little bit hopeless about the world that we're in and the situation that we're in. And Steve Hughes, in a couple of weeks' time, is going to be talking about how we need to cultivate a persistent prayer life. And to counter that, final gravitational pull is towards desensitization, that there's just so much pain and brokenness around us. Yes, we're going to be these people that hold on to eternal kingdom, the eighth day in the seven, if you remember from last week. But, but it actually can get hard. And actually to cope with this world, sometimes we just numb ourselves. We just become desensitized to it. 
And the world does not need the church to be desensitized to its pain and its brokenness. It needs a church that's lamenting well, that is fuel for an intercessory prayer life. That we say, we just continue to just keep going, keep going, keep asking for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And Emma Heddle's uh, going to be talking out through. She's got an amazing vision for intercessory prayer for this church. Um, hence where the morning prayer thing comes from. So do check that out. So today, we're going to zero in. We're going to zone in on, on this gravitational pull towards disconnection and how we need to cultivate a devotional prayer life uh, against that. So let's, let's just get straight in there and just try and answer this question or respond to this question. What is devotional prayer? What is devotional prayer? And I met up with uh, several people this week, actually, just to talk about devotional prayer. And this is slightly less simple to answer than I thought it might be. Uh, th- we actually spent three and a quarter hours discussing this on Wednesday night. So, but here's, here's what I think it is. Let's talk about just prayer to begin with. Just prayer. Prayer is all about Jesus. It's so cliched, it's so Sunday school, but it's all about Jesus, right? This is all about the reason we pray for union with Jesus, connection to him, intimacy with him, relationship with Jesus. That is what prayer is all about. That is the vision of it and the goal of it, union, connection, intimacy, relationship with Jesus. So what is the particular flavor of devotional prayer? So not all the other ones, the devotional prayer. And essentially, it's somewhere in the region of like seeking that kind of union. That kind of connection, intimacy and relationship with Jesus, seeking it with, uh, intentionally, deliberately going after it, frequently and consistently. So seeking that kind of union with Jesus, but doing it intentionally, like going after it uh, and doing it often and trying to do it consistently over time. Um, and uh, I've tried something like this. It's the deliberate, the deliberate, the chose, you know, you've chosen to do this, the deliberate bringing of our whole being. Not just the nice bits, not just the bits that we think are presentable to God, but it's the whole of our being into the presence of God. That's what it is that we're talking about today, bringing our whole being deliberately into the presence of God as often and as consistently as we possibly can. Uh, And uh, yeah, I said, we obviously kicked this series off last week, and it's been a really interesting week, actually, immediately the conversations after it. Um, And some of the emails since, or just some of the conversations I've had, and as I said, chat with a whole bunch of people on Wednesday evening about this. Um, And and actually, you know, one just observation that's risen above all of the rest, because there's lots of like, I want to get to grips with this, but the number one thing that I've heard this week, above everything else, is shame. Shame and guilt, right across basically everyone I've spoken to. There's a sense of shame and guilt, like a muscle memory deep down inside lots of us around this area of devotional prayer. Essentially, you spoke last week and it's like, yeah, 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 cool. But then the conversation in the pub afterwards is like, oh, I don't really do it. Or, or like, I think we're probably, what we're probably going to talk about next week is a morning quiet time between the hours of 6.30 and 7.30. I'm like, I can't remember the last time I did that. And it's like shame and guilt starts to set in and just inadequacy and embarrassment. And like, uh, you just, you know, you can't remember the last time we did that sort of stuff. And it's just there and it's, and it's, and it's really crippling. And it's, it's everywhere. And I just want to um, talk about this because it's a taboo subject. It feels like we don't talk about this. Um, and everyone thinks that everyone else is doing it really well and doing it all the time and that you're far worse than everyone else. And I just want to say today, I think that that is one of the main things that God is wanting to do is to heal a vast majority of this church of, a, of this historical muscle memory guilt and shame around the area of prayer because it is contributing to our disconnection from him and we need to be a community together actually encouraging each other back towards this. So I hope today is about that above all else. What is this all about? As Pete Gregg put it at the beginning of that amazing 24-7 visionary prayer, the vision is Jesus. 
The vision is Jesus, obsessively, dangerously, undeniably Jesus. That is what this is all about. If you listen to anything, this is about Jesus, union and connection, intimacy with Jesus. But we can get caught up, right, on the practice itself. I just want to talk about this. It's a common thing with the spiritual practices, the spiritual disciplines that might be put, or patterns, as we might call them. But here's, here's a direct discipline, always about pattern. Here's the direct discipline. Okay, take me take you back to 2003, Rugby World Cup, Rugby World Cup final. Yeah, we're not that young. Are we know. Okay, Rugby World Cup final. Any Aussies in the house? You're going to enjoy this one. Yeah, come on. Um, <laughs> uh, you were here this morning, so you know. But right, Johnny Wilkinson, he's been on the training ground. For hours upon hours upon hours, just receiving the ball back, just drop kick, drop kick, drop kick. Thousands and thousands of hours from different bits of different parts of the pitch, right? So that when it gets to the final minute of the 2000 World Cup final, he gets that ball back just at the right moment. And he just gloriously, in a heavenly way, just kicks it between those things and it's just the single greatest sporting moment of my life and and just you know we're all just cheering it right but he so he's been practicing this thing hours and hours and hours on the training pitch so that in the match he can do the same thing that's a direct discipline he's practicing practicing and practicing so he can do the same thing on the pitch in the right moment and give us that glorious moment spiritual disciplines are, are generally they're indirect disciplines and so when you're reading your bible hours and hours a day you're, you're, you're not doing that so you're better at reading the Bible. Does that make sense, right? You're doing that so you can encounter the risen Jesus in it and, the, and, the, and, the, and anchor yourself in the story of what it is that God is doing so you can be totally and utterly rooted in the Scriptures. And when you're praying, when you're doing devotional prayer, that's what the point I'm trying to make here is that it's not, it, you, you're not doing it to be better at devotional prayer. You're doing it to cultivate an intimacy and a connection and a relationship with Jesus. But the problem is, it's about the who, but we all get caught up on the what. We get very, very focused, even obsessed in, on the discipline itself, the practice itself. And so when we screw up the practice, we somehow associate it with Jesus. We lose sight of why it is that we're doing this, right? And, and, and we've, got to, we've got to put that to the side. We've got to lose the obsession with the practice and go after the, the why. Remember the why of what we're doing this for is to connect with Jesus. And so I, the good news of all of this, because I think when people talk about devotional prayer life, as I said, people think, okay, it's 6.30 in the morning and it's this, this, and this. And I'm no good at that, and so I can't do devotional prayer as I lose out in intimacy with Jesus. And you know what? I just want to say that our patterns when it comes to this will look as diverse as we are diverse in this room. This is the glorious thing about this, right? If prayer is about intimacy with Jesus and connection with him and total union with him as your true self, naked before him, so to speak, if that is what this is all about, then in devotional prayer, in prayer, we, are, we become most ourselves. We become more diverse. There's no uniformity when it comes to this. They become more diverse, right? Because it's in that moment that our personality, our history, our story, the truths of our lives, the happenings of our lives, they come into play and it's only you before him. And so the patterns of what this will look like, I just want to say this from the start, will look totally different for all of us. The goal is the same. Intimacy, union, connection, the presence of Jesus. Does that make sense? I just feel like so many of us get caught up on the practice. I don't do it like this and therefore I can't. Shame, guilt. 
and you just shrink back from the whole thing. So I want to pray today that Jesus would set us free from all the guilt and shame that we've all been feeling so much of. So this is about um, deliberately, as often as we can, as consistently as we can, bringing our whole true selves into the presence of God for union with him. Uh, Jesus did this all the time, but Jesus often, often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Sorry, I'm a bit ill, not emotional, although this is an emotional topic for me. Anyway, Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives to pray. And then he goes to talk to his disciples. He says, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father. There's just so many examples of this all over it. Jesus felt it was absolutely critical of his life to go and get reconnect and just be intimate with his father. He said he only did what his father was doing. Well, how did he know that? Because he constantly reconnected himself to his father. And so why, why do we need to? It's the same thing, right? This is what he says in John 15. This is the classic text for this. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. He's trying to set up this imagery of a vine. He's saying, stay connected to me. You're one of the branches. Stay connected to me. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. We all want to bear fruit in our lives. The only way we can do it is by staying connected and intimate with Jesus, keeping that relationship strong. And here's an image of Jesus as a shepherd. My sheep listen to my voice. It's an image of intimacy and of closeness, of a whispering shepherd gently speaking and the, shepherd, the sheep being so close and attentive, they hear it and they know it. They're familiar with it. And look, the shepherd knows them. Jesus knows us. It's a relationship and they follow the shepherd. We talk a lot here about apprenticing ourselves to Jesus, about being with him, becoming like him and doing what he did. The foundation of the whole thing, the thing that it begins with, the thing that it's sustained by is being connected to the vine, being intimate with Jesus. It's the, it's the ball game. It's the bedrock for everything else. We have to learn ways of being with Jesus in order to become like him and to do what he did. Moses got it. I talked about this last week. We talk about it all the time because it's so key. He says that he doesn't want to go forward with his life. He doesn't want this communities to move, his community to move forward unless God's presence goes with him. He says this amazing thing. What else will distinguish us from the people, from all the other people on the face of the earth? What else distinguishes us? This is the same question we've got to be asking. Our unique contribution to this world is the presence of God. It's the presence of God. I hate to break it to you, but loads of other people are good at your job as well. Right? Loads of other people are good at it as well. Loads of other people have got great ideas. Like we, we have to not kid ourselves tight with this stuff. What is we do bring? What is we do bring? We bring the presence of God, the life-changing presence of God and good news of Jesus with us wherever we go. We've got to stay connected to the source, otherwise we will just dry up. So the question I want to ask you before we go any further, here's the questions that we can sometimes jump to straight away. Well, what? Or what, what does this look like? And, and how am I meant to do this? Uh, and, or you might go into like, but, but, but. But I've got two kids. This is me. This is the last four years. I've basically been going, but, but oh, you didn't like, I used, this was fine. This was fine before we had kids, but, but I've got kids. So like, and as soon, I had this sort of grace for myself and like, you've got to be grace. But soon it just frankly just set in as, as, as excuse. And, and actually I'm losing out. I'm losing out. And everyone around me is losing out if I don't stay connected to Jesus. So the question I don't want us to stop on right now is, is how. We'll look at that a little bit later. Or, or but, 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 but I can't do that. It's, it's this. Do you want this kind of life? Just pause there. Do, do you want it? There are, there are so many genuine challenges to this. And we're going to look at them now. There are so many challenges to this. So I just want us to pause for a moment before we get to all of those and just say, do you want it?
Do you want it? Do you want to walk with intimacy with Jesus everywhere you go? Where the true you is brought into his presence to be transformed by him and to be in relationship with him. Do you want it? Now, assuming the answer is yes, we'll carry on because that's kind of key to the rest of the talk. Uh, <clears throat> so assuming it's right, I just want to talk to what are the obstacles to devotion prayer life. Like we're talking about this gravitational pull towards disconnection that almost seems the automatic thing that happens if we just go by day by day is a disconnection starts to set in. So what are these obstacles? What are the things that are contributing to this? And when we set out to do this um, this week, uh, I honestly was basically thinking about external factors. I was basically thinking about, and I'm going to come on to them. I was basically thinking about busyness and hurry and distraction and technology. That, that's basically what I thought I'd be speaking about today. But as I talk with people over this week and everything that's going on, I actually realized like those are critical and we are going to look at them. But actually, there's some internal factors going on that are actually probably more persuasive in this thing. Like they're actually probably more at work. So I just want to touch on three of these. Um, and the first one is this. So these are internal obstacles. And I've called this a dislike of self. A dislike of self is an obstacle, a contributing factor to a, a sort of gravitational pull away from connection with Jesus. What do I mean by dislike of self? It's just what I've called it. This is what I mean. Essentially, what I've been talking about so far, shame. A sense of shame, a sense of guilt going on, a narrative just swirling around us, and a sense of inadequacy leading to a hiding from God. So everything I just talked about before, and a sense of inadequacy, leading to a hiding from God. And we've been here before as humankind. Uh, then the man, and this is right at the start of our story, just after we as humankind have messed up, it says this, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. An image of God actually seeking us out and wanting a relationship with us. Conversational, daily relationship with us. So he walked in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why? They knew they'd done something wrong. Guilt, shame, inadequacy starts to set in. The response is to hide. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Can we all just give me some feedback here? Like, can we relate to this, that we, we do this in our daily life? I feel like so much of the narrative of my life has been defined in little moments by essentially, oh, gosh, I've done that. Or, gosh, I've thought that. Or, gosh, I'm like this. And therefore, like, I can't come to God, so I'm going to hide from him. Thinking, of course, stupidly, that it's better to hide from God and not show him those things than to let him see those things. And at the full good news of the, of the gospel, actually say, okay, I see. The good news is not that he, that he says, oh, it's fine, didn't see it, don't worry about it is that he sees it and he's like I see it in all of its ugliness and you know what I went to the cross for that stuff and it's and you're forgiven of it it, it is that is what is um so glorious we do not need to hide and interestingly uh observationally I think often shame is driven by comparison to humans more it is than a comparison to God I think in, in its best form, comparison to God of like, oh, wow, you're so holy, you're so pure, you're so vast, actually leads to a sense of inadequacy, but then to awe. Because you're like, and it actually fuels a devotional prayer life. It's just like, oh, wow, God, you're so amazing. But when we compare ourselves to other humans, and in, in, in preparing for this, I heard lots of people say, like, to be honest with you, I've seen other people talk from the front and pray from the front. And I'm just not like that. And so, again, I just start to, to not do it. Or I'm not like that person, or I don't, I'm not as close to that, uh, to God as that person, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, it's, it's this sideways comparison that's going on all the time amongst us, and it's leading to a shame in a deep place, and it's leading to us hiding from God. And, and Jesus saw this coming, right? Like he saw this coming because he was there in that garden. And, and he, he speaks to this when he teaches on prayer. 
in an amazing way. So the, the disciples come to him and say, uh, would you teach us how to pray? Um, and he goes on to teach them the Lord's Prayer, right? So he goes on to give them the, a bit of the how, like this is how you can pray. And that's what we looked at right at the start. Pray to your heavenly Father, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, but before that, so before he teaches them how to pray, he intends to teach them how to come to him to pray. How, how should you approach me? So yes, yes, we'll talk about how to pray. But first of all, I want to address something right at the heart of an intimate prayer life. And he says this to them. When you pray, he says this to his disciples. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. Do not be like the hypocrites. And I've mentioned this before at Casey, so I'll do a briefer version of this. But what he's saying here is this, like the word hypocrite there is a Greek word called hypocrates. And hypocrates was the technical word, the name given to an actor on a stage who acted one, as a one person in the play, and they acted using masks. So they would use a mask to, to convey a different emotion here and a different emotion there, to be a different character here and a different character there. So when he says, do not pray like the hypocrites, what he's saying to them is, that, okay, okay, here's what you should pray, but first of all, don't come to me like an actor. Don't come to me with a mask on where you're pretending to be this and you're pretending to be that, pretending to be acceptable, praying to me as you think you should be, not how you actually are. He's saying, take that off. I want to see you as you truly are. The, the, the soil for a prayer life. You want me to teach you how to pray? I want to talk to you about the soil first. The soil for a fertile, intimate prayer life is when you come to me genuinely as you are. Don't fake it. Don't put on a mask. Don't act. Come to me as you are. That is the foundation for all of this. If we hide our true selves from God, it is going to be very difficult in that moment to develop any kind of intimacy with him. Because we're praying as we think we should be and not how we are. So just like the psalmist, you read it all over the psalms, let your failures be fuel for a devotional prayer life. Don't let them lead to shame and to guilt and to hiding from him. Because it's contributing to us being disconnected from Jesus because we're just hiding from him for weeks at a time. Because we can't cope with ourselves. He can. He went to the cross for you. So let's go to him without a mask on, because that's who he wants to see. So the first one is a dislike of self. The second one is an obsession with self. And this is how weird we are as humans, right? That we don't, we don't actually really like ourselves, and we don't actually think we're good enough and we're quite inadequate, and yet we're obsessed with ourselves, and it's all about us. So what is, if, if that was a, a dislike of self, shame, guilt, inadequacy, then this is what obsession with self means. And you might not think this is you, but... It probably is, if I'm being honest. And like, it's probably subtly at work, but it is. You don't want to say this is you, but the world revolves around me. And like, we don't have to be massively egotistical for that to be the case, but it's just essentially like, my life is the thing I think about most. My priorities are things that I need to get done in a day. They're just, this is what it looks like for the world to revolve around us. Um, uh, I know best. Ultimately, that's a narrative that's probably deep down. I actually know best for my life. Um, I want control. It's a really good way to see if this is in there, in going on in you. I actually want control of my life. And then here's the killer. Essentially, we think that God is joining in with me. I've got my life to live. And what faith looks like, what prayer looks like, is getting God to join in with me, to sign off on the things that I want to do with my life. He's my help, and he is a helper, don't get me wrong. But it's, yeah, where God is joining in with me. So why does this lead to disconnection? Why does this lead to disconnection? Because a prayer life that I've been talking about tonight, where we bring our whole true selves into him, is ultimately an act of surrender. Of letting our agendas go and just bringing ourselves before him as our true selves. And the Hebrews, this looks like a strange segue, but the Hebrews really got this. 
And it's because they understood that the day began at sunset, not at sunrise. This is how you can tell that they really understood that the world did not revolve around them. The day in the Hebrew mindset began at sunset and not at sunrise. So for each and every one of us, right, and if, if you're anything like me, you, you're going to get up tomorrow and it's going to be like, cool, the day's beginning. Let's do this. Like, what have I got to do? This is the stuff I've got to get done. Like, the day's begun because I'm here. And I've got things to do. Uh, and, and so now the day's begun. Whereas for the Hebrews, it just wasn't the case. It just wasn't the case because the day began at sunset. Essentially, the day began with inaction from them, but action from God, right? That he was already holding the world together. He was on a mission. And that when you wake up, it's a complete privilege to join in with what he is doing, not getting him to join in with what we are doing. It's why there's amazing prayers around, uh, around God being active at nighttime. And just things like that. It's extraordinary. It's this surrender of like, yes, you're in charge the world revolves around you not around us the day begins at sunset not sunrise you see this in the creation narrative right and there was evening and there was morning the first day and there was evening and there was morning the second day you see it in the psalmist in in his devotional life evening this is a rhythm of prayer that he had evening morning and noon evening morning and noon i cry out in distress totally honestly i cry out in distress and he hears my voice intimacy When we pray out of self-obsession, it disconnects us from God because essentially he's become a service provider to us. That's why over time that leads to a sense of disconnection from God because it's a one-sided relationship. It's not actually a true relationship. So uh, a dislike of self, an obsession with self, and then finally an addiction to results. Are you ready to be? Yeah, another another one. Um, So an addiction to results. Here's how you can tell if this is you. Uh, getting something from God is the main motivation for praying. If you just didn't like an audit of your prayers, getting something from God is the main motivation from praying. It's essentially driven by this culture that we're in, driven by results-driven culture, right? Where essentially like we think things are going well when the results are coming in. We feel more satisfied with life when the results are going right in our life. We, uh, we, we want this to happen. And if it does, that's a success. Then there's impatience that starts to set in. It's like, not only do I want this to happen, but I want it in this time. I caught myself the other day putting dinner in for putting eight minutes on the oven and then like wishing it would hurry up. Do you know what I mean? Like I I put the eight minutes on the oven. It's an oven. It's just counting down. But I'm there like, come on, come on, come on. And it's just this impatience that's just set in. It's so deep within us. There's an entitlement going on with all of us. With all of us, we actually just think we deserve this stuff. And so God should give it to us. And when we get it, that means he likes us and he's for us. But when we don't, a victim culture starts to set in. And we start to be like, oh, didn't get that. So I'm not going back to him for a while. Like this isn't, it's not as crude as this. It's not as obvious as this all the time, right? But actually we start to like not get the things we want in the time that we want them looking like we want them. And actually we start to actually disconnect ourselves from God and not go back to him for a while and think in some ways he loves us less. And and this is the thing is that this just creates a transactional relationship between us and God. A transactional relationship. And of course, a transactional relationship isn't really a true relationship. We're just wanting things from God. We're not wanting him. Pete Gray puts it like this. I love it. Speaking into this whole topic. He says, the transformative power of prayer is not so always in the answer to it, but in the process of praying it. Now, don't get me wrong. The answers to our prayers really matter, and they matter to God. When you're asking for something that is really important, and you're probably asking for some really meaningful and challenging things right now. But there's something in this, which is like, 
there's a lot of transformation. When you hear miracles and stories like that, it's total transformation. But you know what? There's real transformation in the process of praying. Why? Because in the process of praying, you're just with God. You're just with him. And I know from having kids, like, when I give one of my kids a present, like, their eyes light up a bit. But if I say to them, hey, do you want to play for 10 minutes? Do you want to go for a wrestle? Do you want to play monsters? Their eyes really light up. Why? Because they know that I want to spend time with them. It's time with them that's far more important than a gift. The gifts are good, but it's time with him. And so there's this process of praying and just being with God that is truly the transformative part of a devotional prayer life. Because why? It's the ultimate thing. Union with God. Intimacy with God. That is what it's all about. And if you take this transactional um, relationship and flip it, so now I've been talking about essentially how if God doesn't give us the thing we want in the time that we want it, in the shape that we want it, then we, we buy out. Uh, then here's, here's the thing that can start to flip around, is essentially when we start, we go right back to the start again and to dislike ourselves, when we don't deliver the results, where we start to mess up, right? You're on a transactional basis, well, we've not delivered the results. And so again, hide, shame, guilt, and we move away from God and disconnection starts to slip in too. So a, a, a transactional relationship with God is really difficult. So here's a summary of this bit. With a dislike of self, we hide from relationship. With an obsession with self, we create a one-sided relationship. And with an addiction to results, we create a transactional relationship. And ultimately, none of those things are fuel for, for union with God and intimacy with God and connection with God. Um, and so I just want to give us the heads up with those. I think they're really, really important and the things that we want to pray for in a bit. So those are the internal ones. Just going to do two in the external realm. Busyness and hurry. It's a classic, right? But it's so, so prevalent. Business and hurry. Here's how you know this is going on. Our diaries and heads are so full. There is literally next to no time or headspace to meaningfully connect with God. We barely stop. Can anyone relate to it? Living in this city, we just barely stop. Barely got any headspace. Barely got any diary space. The author Michael Zigarelli puts it like this. It's not as clean cut as this, but he makes a point and makes it well. Christians are assimilating into a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to a deteriorating relationship with God which leads to Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, and then the cycle begins again. Right? It's not as clean-cut as that, but there's this sense right, where we, we just squeeze God out of our lives, and then we're unfamiliar with his voice. To start, the sheep no longer know the voice of their shepherd, and so they start to hear other voices in culture and start to follow those ones in their hearts, go down those avenues and follow those shepherds in culture, and then you start to get sucked back into things that are continuing the cycle of disconnection from God. If we want an intimate prayer life with God, we're going to have to make space we're going to have to stop every now and again. Now, I just want to clarify one thing here. It's the difference between busy and hurry. Busy and hurry. John Ortberg was having a conversation with Dallas Willard, which for me is like, oh my goodness, I wish I was there. But um, for most of you, it probably isn't. Uh, but these are two heroes. Um, John Ortberg says this, Dallas pointed out to me once that there is a world of difference between being busy and being hurried. Being busy is an outward condition, a condition of the body or of the diary, right? It occurs when we have many things to do. Being hurried is an inner condition, a condition of the soul. It means we to be so preoccupied with myself and my life that I am unable to be fully present with God, with myself, and with other people. I'm una unable to occupy the present moment. Busyness migrates to hurry when we let it squeeze God out of our lives. 
I cannot live in the kingdom of God with a hurried soul. I cannot rest in God with a hurried soul. And it leads Dallas Willard to say that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And Jesus spoke into this, right? I just want to speak to this point of difference between busyness and hurry. Because I think somewhere this, like, lots of people in this room do genuinely have lots of demands on you. Like, if you've got kids, you can't just ruthlessly eliminate them. Uh, do you know what I mean? Like, you, you can't just do that. Or if you've got, gen, like, if you're not in charge of the shifts that you're put on, because you're working for the sake of all of us, who goodness knows what shifts you're on working in the NHS, and thank you for doing so. Or, or if you've just got a boss that's just, and it's really, like, you're not always got the freedom of choice around some of the things that are put on you. I totally get that. And that does not mean that you cannot walk with the presence of God wherever you go, right? So let's listen to this teaching from Jesus from Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a famous teaching of Jesus. Now, what Jesus does not say here is, um, uh, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and spend your life on a beach, and I will give you rest, right? He doesn't say that. Yoke, a yoke, right, is the thing that goes around an ox's uh, neck or a pair of ox, and they would pull something along. Um, and so what he's not saying is, like, you need to just escape from work and from anything in life. And you just need to clear the entire diary and just go and be on a beach, and that's the way that you will find rest with me. No, absolutely not. This is how Frederick Dale Bruno, a theologian, puts it. A yoke is a work instrument. You remember that the oxes were pulling something they were doing something we were made to extend eden to the rest of the earth not to sit around on an eden like beach a yoke is a work instrument thus when jesus offers a yoke he offers what we might think tired workers need least they need a mattress or a vacation not a yoke but jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life a fresh way to bear responsibilities that's what Jesus is speaking about here. If you've got a full-on diary, now, equally, I don't want to let everyone off the hook here because often, actually, what we need to do is slow down. We do actually probably need to cut stuff out and our headspace is probably too full and our diary is probably too full if we're really, really honest. So if we're not looking for excuses but genuinely trying to pursue Jesus, then let's just, just know that there is a way to carry life differently, to walk with the presence of God right through the busyness of that diary that you've got or the shift that you're on or whatever it might look like. It does not mean that those who are busy and got demands cannot be walking in the presence of God. It does not mean that at all. So I guess I'd ask you, like, does life feel too busy? Does it feel in too much of a hurry that you cannot make yourself present, you know, deliberately bringing your whole life into the presence of God frequently and consistently. Second one is this, distraction. And this is the last one. Uh, Distraction. Distraction conspires with hurry. That's what I want to say. Distraction conspires with hurry to disconnect us from God. Uh, We've conditioned ourselves. We're being conditioned to prefer entertainment over intimacy. I really think this is what is going on with most of us. We've been conditioned to prefer entertainment over intimacy. So if you think about this, how does distraction conspire with hurry? Well, hurry means that you just go through your week and you're just hammering it and it's, you're just slammed the whole time. It means what? You're tired. And there's very few gaps in the diary, but when you get to those gaps, you're so exhausted, you actually cannot cope with how you are doing. 
in that moment. You suddenly get two hours free that evening, but you, you, you'd almost, it, it feels a disconnection from God because you can't even bring yourself before him, honestly, because you honestly don't know how you are. So the easier thing to do and the thing you most want is entertainment. You want distraction through technology generally. You want distraction from actually confronting the real you and what is actually going on. And so it conspires with busyness and hurry because we're so slammed and then we get to a moment that we might be able to encounter Jesus with intimacy and we distract ourselves because we cannot actually cope with the true selves. This is how Martin Weigel puts it. He puts it that, that the world is fracking for our attention. Fracking for our attention. You know the brutal practice of drilling into the seabed and it releases shale gas and then they harvest the shale gas to get um, to, to, for money. Right? It's an uninvited interruption. It's a brutal interruption into our day. And what he's trying to say here is that's just what's going on with each and every one of us. If we live in modern society with, techni- with technology and a mobile phone, we're having our attention fracked. Uninvited interruption into our day. And we're talking about the way of Jesus here. I just want to talk about the way of advertising. And I'm so sorry if, you're, if you work in advertising. This is an advertiser who's saying this. Um, and he's kind of critique the industry and say there must be a better way forward. But he says this is the way of advertising. Interrupt. Okay, you're going about your day. Think about advertising in the world. You're being interrupted. You didn't ask it. You've been interrupted. Uh, and then you've got the goal is to capture your attention by something. And you're just like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm there. I'm in. And then it leaves a trace. It might be an image. Like, she looks great. Or like, oh, that looks nice. Or that holiday looks fantastic. Or whatever it might be. Or I want that. It leaves a trace. And then just, it's just about reinforcing it repeatedly. And in so doing, creating an empire of the mind. This is way beyond my paycheck, but this is essentially about neuroplasticity. And so once you've done something and repeated it a few times, you're more likely to do it again. And your brain is actually being rewired and its mass is changing. So you're more likely to do that thing again and again and again. And they're calling that the empire of the mind. And if you can create an empire in one of our minds, then you can draw profit from it. If you can do it, if you can interrupt, capture attention, leave a trace with something you really want, reinforce it, you create an empire of the mind and then you can draw profit from it. The lesson here in its briefest form is that short-term attention leads to long-term loyalty. Short-term attention, the things that we're giving our attention to, our attention is so important, it's such an intimate thing and it's been fracked. And it means that we're now wired for entertainment and rather for, than for intimacy. And that is, a, that is a challenge, at least, for our devotional prayer life. John Tyson puts it like this, a pastor in New York, attention leads to adoration. If we can give him our attention, if we can give Jesus our attention, it will lead to adoration. Distraction is a thief. So I've talked about internal factors and I've talked about external factors. And just for literally for four or five minutes, I just want to talk about how we might be able to cultivate a devotional prayer life in the midst of all that. Can we relate to any of the stuff that I was just saying? How like, Are we doing all right? Okay, okay, good, good. I'm worried it was just me. Okay, here's three things, really simple things. We're going to do them quickly. Anything you can do. In terms of how can we cultivate a devotional prayer life? Just anything you can do to fuel honesty with God. To, remember I was saying it's about bringing your true self, that you, before him. Not with a mask on, not acting, not pretending, just you. Anything you can do to fuel that happening is going to help you with your devotional prayer life. Here's three things. You'll notice in the course of this talk, like I haven't given you loads of examples from my own life. That is not because I, hopefully not, because I don't have a devotional prayer life at all. Well, I'm, I'm deliberately doing that because I don't want to slip into the first thing, which is that like, oh, Pete does it like that. I can't do it like that. And therefore I can't. 
Does that make sense? So I'm deliberately, it's a choice to not do that. But here's three things. These aren't things necessarily for me. These are just things down the ages that I think you might want to try. Solitude, silence, and fasting to fuel an honesty before God. Here's, here's how very briefly solitude works. Because there is so much distraction right going on, uh, and, and we're so struggling to bring just ourselves before God, this is the primary physical thing you can do, is just to get alone. No other humans, no technology, just you and God. It makes it just you and God. You stand a better chance of bringing yourself to him in all, it's honest, in all your honesty. Second thing, if you can make that silent, it's an amazing next step. So um, re- just removes distraction. So often, like, even just having worship music on or something like that, but it's still, a, it's still me avoiding myself, essentially. Um, and so if you can be silent, uh, it, then it's an amazing thing. It starts to remove distraction. Um, and honestly, honestly, five minutes will do. Like, it's a really, really good start. Start to bring your real self before him. Thirdly, if at some point you, you can try fasting, and by fasting, like, something that is numbing you would be really good. So, like, it might, it, yeah. And what you'll notice... If you, if you sit alone in silence, fasting something that normally gives you comfort and therefore just suppresses the things that's really going on in you, you'll probably, I do, find you're just really angry. That's basically, that's honestly, I, I'm like, wow, I'm a really angry person. And it starts to explain why you were shouting down at the, like, in the, you know, the, the cycle race to work, if you cycle to work. It brings the worst out in me. But anyway, um, you, I, like, I'm like, why am I like that? Oh, I just haven't even stopped to see the condition of my soul for ages. Uh, so these three things can help. Um, Digit Bonhoeffer, no talks complete without Digit Bonhoeffer in it. Uh, we're so afraid of silence that we chase ourselves from one event to the next in order to not have to spend a moment alone with ourselves, in order to not have to look at ourselves in the mirror. Susan Muto, in a noise-polluted world, it is even difficult to hear ourselves think let alone try and be still and know God. Yet it seems essential for our spiritual life to seek some silence, no matter how busy we may be. Here's the key bit. Silence is not to be shunned as empty space. Like in, a, in a results-driven world, silence feels like empty space, a waste of time. It's not to be shunned as empty space, but to be befriended as fertile ground for intimacy with God. Why? Because it allows the real you to surface with everything that's going on. You haven't distracted. You haven't pushed things aside. You haven't justified. It's just you, the real you. So that's the first thing. Do anything you possibly can to fuel honesty with God. The second thing is arrange your life around God's presence. People have been doing this since the first church, right? So in the, uh, in the early church, the first thing they did is they set up these rhythms, these patterns of living. Uh, and, and it's called a rule of life down history. I'm literally going to do three minutes on this. Uh, I, could, on, I could speak for hours on this. But it, essentially, the word for rule, when it comes to rule of life, a rule of living, a way of living, is the same word that we've now got for trellis. And it simply is this, you probably don't have a garden, but you may have a garden somewhere in this world. And you put down trellising in it, right? It's a deliberate thing. You're going to stake that in the ground and up it, up, things grow up it. That's all it is to start arranging your life around the presence of God, to create a little moment, a little space, a little time, a little pattern. You start to dig this trellising in and allow the right things to grow up. That's what, that's what it is. And we can tend to, particularly in the charismatic church, love the idea of spontaneity. As if it's almost like at the peak of um, spiritual existence. That to be spontaneously kind, spontaneously generous, because we've got the Spirit of God in us. It's totally true. But actually, in that sense, we can think that discipline is somehow the antithesis to spontaneity. 
They're like, oh, that's the boring bit. I don't want to do that bit. But actually, it's the birthplace of spontaneity. And you ask any jazz musician, I think, it's like they're the most spontaneous musicians in the world, right? It's because they spend hours and hours and hours and hours just putting down trellising, practicing the scales. Um, and if we want to be people who just erupt with the kingdom of God wherever we go, we just want to overflow from us, then the best place we can start, the birthplace of it is discipline. It's just making some really simple choices in your shape, with your personality, with all the things going on in your life to arrange your life around the presence of God. Stephen Covey puts it like this. He says, inner peace comes when your schedule is aligned with your values. So many, he basically is talking about like, why do we all walk around just like, oh, just frustrated, just frustrated. It's not because we have a lack of values. Like we probably know how we want to live. We want to see certain things coming to pass in our life. But the problem is our schedule, our, our, our structures, like the trellising of our life just isn't set up to grow the right things. And so we have these values, but they're disconnected and disjointed with the way that we're actually living our life. And it leads to a lack of peace. And he's just saying inner peace comes when we start to marry the two together, where we have this desire to have an intimate relation with God and we've set up some trellising to help it happen. When we look at your diary, do we see your value? the value that you have for intimacy with God. And I just want to say this one more time, that our patterns will look as diverse as we are diverse, just in case you slip back into it. Who are you? God wants to meet that person. Start putting up some trellising that's familiar with that. Finally, journey with others. Don't go on it alone. Journey with others. Let's, let's get on. I've said enough. Let's, let's, um, should we pray? Do you want to stand with me? And um, let's just open ourselves up to the Spirit. And Amy and the band.